Hey, friends, welcome to Quizlet, the show where we get to know the upcoming contestants in the next Quizertron. I'm your host, Rebecca Watson, and I'm here with Quizertron's resident comedian, Keith Lowell Jensen. Hey, Keith. Hey, how are you? I'm super. How are you doing? Doing good. Tired, but good. Good. Well, yeah, that's right. You've been very busy. Why don't you tell the nice people what you were doing last night? Uh, I'm getting to work with Michelle Wolf. Awesome. So, yeah, normally after I perform, I can go home and go to sleep. But that when you're performing with Michelle Wolf, you stay and you watch and then you're tired. Did you go out partying? No, you know, I just didn't feel up to the the usual uh, strippers and cocaine last right. night. So I, I took a rain check. Got you. Um, she's real into like running and fitness, so I didn't. I didn't know. I think that. Uh, I think we did party. We in the green room ate some fresh fruit. Good. I think that was, you know, um, a rager. Good. Good. Now I I like that you're enjoying life to the fullest. There. So yes. Oh, and I had some sparkling water straight from the bottle. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. I'm done. Good. Good. I I was done like three minutes ago. But... I know. I sense that. And we've only been recording for two, so. I know. It's rough. <laughs> so this week's guest is, I believe, the person with the most degrees to her name who has ever appeared on the show. Uh, these include Ooh. a BA in chemistry and philosophy from Wellesley, a PhD in chem- chemistry from Stanford. I can't even pronounce it. And another PhD in philosophy, also from Stanford. She is a professor of philosophy at San Jose State and a writer for Forbes who covers the ethics and philosophy of science. Welcome to the show, Janet D. Stemwittle. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Um, First of all, I want to ask off the bat something that's been bugging me. Is the D necessary? Is there a Janet Stemwettel who also has many degrees in science who you didn't uh, want to be confused for? I have an aunt named Janet Stemwettel, and it's uh, it's very important to both of us that we not get confused for each other. How many PhDs does she have? She, to the best of my knowledge, doesn't have any, although, you know, she does a lot of stuff I don't know about. Uh, but she she's a computer scientist, so it's possible that people in some of your more sciencey, techy kinds of circles might get confused. Okay, yeah, you also, have some overlaps. Yeah, the D is also important because it's it's uh, kind of a shout out to my great great grandmother who went to medical school in the 1880s after she was widowed and she had to figure out how to take care of her kids and she's like yeah she's like well okay medical school seems reasonable i i believe actually that was what her her husband had been a doctor and she i think she looked and said i could do that and she was right (laughs) so you come from a long line of incredible that's great I mean, there's there's sort of variations on incredible. I I come from a, a line of bloody minded women, so yeah. <laughs> Not to focus too much on your great 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 grandmother, but wh- I mean, wh- how did she get in? You know, were they even allowing women into medical school back then? Um, well, you know, in the 1880s, I guess they, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not sure what the admissions process was like. It may have been that they understood that there was a lot of demands for medical care that was not being met. Um, you know, I guess that was not too far after the Civil War. So I don't know what that did to the talent pool. Oh, so, right. Yeah, I mean, I I think she just uh, she kind of showed up and was like, "Yeah, you want me?" 
<laughs> and and was persuasive and made the case. That's how I get along at bars, actually. <laughs> uh, she probably That's did some topic. of that too. <laughs> nice. No, my uh, my grandpa made really good meatballs. I mean, I I can't imagine what it was like growing up with that now, kind of pressure that you grew vegan. up with. but but i mean my point is i didn't feel this need to live up to much and then you have these incredible people that came before you Uh, what's that like is that a lot of pressure on a kid i mean i i think i felt more immediate pressure trying to live up to what i saw from my parents so my mom went back to school when i was 11 uh after she had four kids because she had wanted to become an astronomer. She was sort of on a path to doing that. And then because she married my dad and his posting in the Navy wasn't where they thought it was going to be. They thought it was going to be DC. And she had an internship lined up with a Smithsonian to do astronomy type stuff. And it ended up being oh, wow. Charleston, South Carolina. And she was like, oh, crap. Uh, yeah. so she, that's she ended the correct up, response. Yeah, I think she, that's actually on their license plates. <laughs> right. Yeah. So she ended up teaching math in a private school for a semester, um, by which time it was imminently clear to her that why most of those kids were in that private school is their parents didn't want them sitting in an integrated classroom. And she oh, was wow. like, well, crap, this sucks. Um, <laughs> so anyway, she, she spent a bunch of time uh, working as a computer programmer to help put food on the table and also because she was good at that. But what she really wanted to be was an astronomer. So when I was in grade school, I saw her go back and do the equivalent of a second bachelor's degree in physics so that she would have the chops to apply to grad programs in astronomy. And then I saw her her do a master's in astrophysics that was, um, the, the professors in her program were saying, this is uh, way more than a master's thesis. This is on its way to being a PhD. Huh. And she said, yeah, but there's not enough people in the department who actually do astrophysics. So if I want to do a PhD that gets me where I want to go, it's got to be in an astronomy program. Uh, so I, I saw that all happening while I was in high school and college. And then um, after I was in grad school for chemistry, she applied and got into a PhD program in astronomy at University of Maryland and, uh, you know, was on her way. And then my dad had, you know, a major stroke during her first year. And so she had to drop out to take care of him. Oh, so that's, that's sort of been my motivation is, oh, you know, it can be done. There's uh, easier and harder things in our embodied lives to combine it with. And, you know, and it's going to be hard and you kind of have to figure out what, what matters to you most. And then you'll find a way to kind of do it. Yeah. So everyone listening should do what I'm going to do when this is over. Call your parents and thank them for their mediocrity. (laughs) I I don't know. Everyone's parents are awesome in ways that we often don't appreciate till we're trying to deal with that stuff ourselves, honestly. Yeah. So Amen. it was less about, you know, you got to go, you know, get an advanced degree. It was more about if you've got a passion to do something, even if it's hard, 
you should figure out how to prioritize that thing. And also, the things we have passions for are not all just work things. You know, our relationships right. matter too. And that's just as true for people who do the the impressive science and tech things as for people who do the the stuff we take for granted and don't appreciate as much as we should. Oh, sorry. You kind of cut off at the end there. People who do the... So call your parents and thank them. Uh-oh. I, I would maybe leave out the mediocrity mm, thing. I am... I, can, can, can you, you hear, hear me okay, Janet? I can. I feel like you and Rebecca aren't hearing each other, though. Yeah, weird. I got yeah that that this actually is, is true. There we are. Oh. We're back. We're back. I don't know why. You know, so I could hear both of you is. that whole time, Rebecca. Yeah, and I could see her. Uh, I, I could just barely hear her in the background. Maybe you could see you. the waveform. Yeah, it's you know what I'm. I'm sitting here in uh, my office at San Jose State in the heart of Silicon Valley, and it might be that our internet is not as robust <laughs> as it could be. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. It's weird. I've never got this before, but it does seem to be working now. So okay, so we'll we'll ride it out. Let's ride it out, and yeah. and it, it, I can definitely still see the waveform, so things are saving. I think so. Yeah, that's gonna, what's nice is that this saves all three separately. Yeah, um, uh-huh. and just so I know how you ended that, you said it's just as good for people in technology as people. Just that that we we care about more than just the thing we do. That's our career. That's our job. We we care about the people in our lives too. So that matters. So so people have to make allowances. You know, we're all we're dealing with these dumb bodies that fail in various unpredictable ways. And the people we love are too. So we got to work that out. So speaking of things beyond the sciences, um you know, in, in my years of communicating science and talking to a lot of different scientists, I've met a lot of people who uh, work in the sciences but have little to no respect for philosophy. Um, they think of it as being the exact opposite of science, as having no real basis in reality. So I'm interested in what made you want to pursue both philosophy and science together. Yeah, well, okay. So uh, important historical note, most of the sciences that we recognize nowadays in the medieval university would have been part of the philosophy department. Philosophy is called the mother of sciences. And there's a reason for that is the basic approach of let's try and figure out how to nail down our assumptions and logical connections and ask the really hard questions that people think are, are, you know, very ambitious to ask philosophy got that started. The special sciences have just sort of picked smaller pieces of the world to focus on and have developed particular empirical or theoretical techniques to try and get their hands around those. Uh, And the sciences are pinned down with metaphysical commitments. I mean, that's just uh, something that became really clear to me even before I got to grad school in chemistry. Uh, what, do you, is, what do you mean by that exactly? What do I mean exactly? Well, what's, I mean, what's a metaphysical commitment? Okay, a metaphysical commitment is uh, a commitment we have about how the world is. Mm. And some of those are harder to test than others. The metaphysics... Uh, is really sort of the commitments we have that 
we can't easily wave a measuring device at the world and find out whether that's a reasonable commitment or not. We can't measure it the same way we could measure a temperature or a pressure or whatever. But metaphysical commitments include believing that we get any useful information out of doing controlled experiments because the laws of nature aren't going to change on us all of a sudden, oh, right? Assuming right. the laws of nature are stable is a metaphysical commitment. So they're the assumptions that we already base all of our scientific inquiry on. Basically, yeah. So scientists are walking around with heads full of metaphysical commitments that they don't even notice that they have, which is fine. I mean, if we spent all of our time noticing our metaphysical commitments, we'd, we'd never get out and do stuff. But we still have them. Doesn't mean they're bad to have. A lot of times it's helpful. If we said, I don't know if the laws of physics are going to be the same today as they were last time I did this experiment, that would make it a lot harder to find out things about the world. But it also, I think, uh, once you notice how many metaphysical commitments we need to make just even to get science off the ground, you, I think, start being a little bit more careful about how sweeping a claim you can come out making. You start being careful about how much you can say you really know. You know a lot, right. but there's, there's a little bit of wobble in there too. And do you run into pushback from other scientists who would prefer that you just let those metaphysical commitments stay as granted assumptions? You know what? Mostly scientists who I interact with uh, acknowledge that they are assumptions that we're making and that we're happy that they turn out to be assumptions that usually don't get us into too much trouble. Uh, but they tend to recognize that, yeah, that's that's unavoidable, that you can't right. You can't test every assumption you make. You, you just, you wouldn't ever get to the really interesting stuff on the edges if you did. I, it's mostly science fans who get uh. shirty about <laughs> philosophy. They kind of feel like if I'm team science, I have to be against some other team and, and philosophy that over there, that looks like a good opponent. To, so it's, it's very much sort of a Yankees Red Sox kind of dynamic. Right. Let me, I, I'm having trouble wrapping my head around this a little bit. So maybe if I can ask for the, the you know, less educated people in the audience. Uh, <laughs> aren't these assumptions, if they're applying them, or, you know, maybe as you said, kind of ignoring them, but they're getting the results they want, doesn't that give some strength to those assumptions that, that they're consistently able to be ignored and they're when they sort of skip them and get onto the interesting stuff, it's not wobbling on them. It's, it's behaving the way they expected it to behave or giving them results that they're able to apply. Sure. Um, and, and there is sort of a, a pragma pragmatic argument that if it's working, it's probably fine. But sometimes it doesn't work, right? Sometimes the assumptions we take for granted uh, end up failing 
in interesting ways. Uh, and even things like you start talking to cosmologists, you start talking to people about how were things right after the Big Bang, and they will mention uh, probably some of the values of the fundamental physical constants in the world were different then. Right. Okay. And if, if we're talking about fundamental physical constant, you know, built into that is it's constant. It doesn't change. And scientists are pointing to conditions under which, yeah, it did change. So things that seem stable, you know, they might have a shelf life, right? There might be these yeah, time yeah. scales on which they stop being so stable. Um, and the other thing, too, is uh, scientists maybe temperamentally would rather, um, or at least many of them, don't want to make claims that could turn out to be wrong. So um, the philosopher Karl Popper, who if scientists know of a philosopher of science that he's usually the guy they know because he's the one who talks about how scientists are these really hard-headed people and they're going out into the world they're taking the hypotheses even the hypotheses that have worked the best for them and they're trying really hard to find conditions in which those hypotheses can be proven wrong that's the kind of tough people that scientists are is they are willing on the basis of evidence to kiss even their favorite hypothesis goodbye well, Popper said, you know, scientists are the kind of people who would rather say, all I know is which hypotheses have turned out to be wrong, than here's a stack of true things I know about the world. Right. Uh, because of, of what philosophers call the problem of induction, which is basically that the data we've got so far doesn't necessarily mean that the data we see next is going to be consistent. Uh, you know, just because we've let go of the ping pong ball and it's dropped to the floor a hundred times doesn't mean the next time we let go of it, it might not do something different. Right. Now, ping pong balls would be really surprising if they do something different. But, you know, some of the, the quantum mechanical stuff that people study... Uh, the exotic behavior took longer to find. Right. Uh, as a side note, I wanted to say that um, Chain of Foolish Assumptions is my favorite metaphysical commitment song. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> That's, yeah, that would work. That, took, that would work. That took me, uh, let's see, we're at 20 minutes now. That took me about 12 minutes. <laughs> to <come laughs> it was worth it. It was definitely worth it. Thanks. Um, <laughs> Janet, uh, are there any aspects of philosophy that you think are sort of not based in science and are kind of rubbish or should be, or could maybe benefit from more scientific thinking? Yeah, uh, that's... Let me think about this. Um, I'm not, I'm one not of the things, to yeah. tattle on your entire industry. I, but, on my, you know. Yeah, to, to, to figure out which powerful philosophers I want on my case right. after they listen to this podcast, which surely they name. will. <laughs> I, would, I would love to start a beef with a big-time oh, philosopher. With a philosopher, um, yeah. What is you a philosopher what? beef like? Uh, they're they're usually... 
they can get ugly. They're usually over really petty things. But no. um, yeah, <laughs> academics, what are you going to do? <laughs> I'm inclined to say, and this is, this is actually something that I internalized while I was studying to be a chemist. Uh, one of the most important things I learned is uh, something that you look at as a question people study in the world and you say, well, whoop-de-doo, what is important about that? That's someone else's life's work, right? You know, we've got this big, complicated universe with lots of pieces to figure out, and we're not all interested in the same pieces. And I think different pieces require different kinds of strategies to find things out about them. So there's some areas of philosophy where I have never really felt the pull of the problems that people are spending their lives trying to solve. But I wouldn't want to go from, I didn't feel the pull of those problems to saying, therefore, it's rubbish and no one should do that. Um, If for no other reason, then, you know, that would mean everyone else is playing in my lane. And that would mean there's fewer jobs for people in my lane. And that would be bad. (laughs) You know, the job situation is already terrible for academic philosophers. I don't want to make it worse. Um, Yeah. And and some people have said, oh, ethics. Ethics is a particular philosophical focus that seems really – Um, You know, we're not talking about how things are, we're talking about how things ought to be, and where are the measurable facts in the world that tell you that, and, you know, so that's too squishy to take seriously. Right. You are real downers, too, you know. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know what? I actually, my view of ethics is there's independent reasons to think having some idea about how to talk about how we share a world with other people, which is really what ethics is about, like that might be good. The only reason I would think you wouldn't want to have good ways to talk about how we should share a world is if you already have all the guns or all the money, right? right? If you got that kind of power, you can set the terms for how you share a world. I have never had all the guns or all the money. So I'm inclined, and I think most practicing scientists don't either, Uh, But scientists, by their own lights, if they're building knowledge about the world and they can't do it all by themselves, they need to have some strategies for how they can get along and do cooperative work with other scientists, right? How how to build that knowledge together. Well, that's going to take ethics because you got to be honest about what you're observing and what conditions you're using to observe it. If you want other scientists to keep playing with you and sharing their information and helping you find errors in your own work, you got to be fair to them. Otherwise, they're going to not play with you. So honesty and fairness are sort of ethical basics that even if the world were only populated by scientists, I think scientists would see the value of. Uh, and then, you know, you, you sort of let it slip in conversation that there are people in the world who aren't scientists. And uh, a lot of those people actually are making science possible through their tax dollars that support not only research, but also the training of new scientists. And then you can start to make the case that, oh, scientists can care about ethics in a 
broader way that includes how we share the world with these other people who maybe don't prioritize knowledge building in quite the same way that scientists do. And, you know, speaking of ethics and science, you know, right now we're seeing this uh, huge comeuppance for a lot of men and a lot of different industries with the hashtag me too stuff that's going on. And a lot of your social media particularly is consumed with that and elevating the voices of women who have been the victims of sexual harassment and assault. Uh, So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the impact of Me Too is on the sciences right now. Yeah, well, I mean, we're at this very interesting moment where it's not just practitioners who are saying, Uh, It kind of sucks to have been trained to think I was a full member of this knowledge building community only to, you know, be getting advice from senior women in science on the pages of Science Magazine that if my postdoc advisor tries to look down my shirt while I'm telling him about my data, I should let it go. And that's a thing that actually happens, um, although, you know. To their credit, within something like 24 hours after the social media uproar, uh, the editors of Science took that particular column down and said, "Eh, maybe that wasn't the best career advice. Uh, But we're now at the point where uh, professional societies are saying sexual harassment is enough of a problem that we need to address it in our own ranks. We need to stop letting people who are harassers, who who have judgments against them, that they have committed harassment at their home institutions, uh, maybe we can stop letting them come to our meetings where they might also be harassing people. Maybe we can consider whether judgments of harassment against you ought to count against your getting funding, to do science, including funding that expects you to be training new scientists, because the way things are set up, those new scientists are really um, vulnerable to the people training them. The power asymmetries have been pretty big. So there's a a 300-plus page report that the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine put out Uh, not only describing the landscape, the reality of harassment in science and and the impacts it's had, but also sort of looking at the structural features that make it possible and making recommendations about things that institutions and um, professional societies can do. And so we're, you know, we're seeing NSF is saying, yep, we are going to take into account in awarding grants who's got judgments of sexual harassment against them. Um, the American Geophysical Union has said, in fact, we're going to define sexual harassment as a kind of research misconduct because it's undermining the community we need to build the kind of knowledge we're trying to build. So this is, you know, all sorts of things that people were saying, you know, maybe just five years ago were changes that were never going to happen. They're starting and, to happen. That's and great. Didn't, uh, didn't Francis Collins recently make a statement on behalf of the National Institutes of Health? In regards yeah, to for the, and NIH has been um, uh, a little bit behind, I guess, in terms of making firm commitments about what they can do. They had um, a letter... 
I guess it was in, I want to say it was 2016, it might have been 2015, uh, published in Nature, written by um, the director of extramural research from NIH, or he was the, the corresponding author saying, oh, we take sexual harassment very seriously. And a lot of, you know, the scientists on Twitter looked at the language of that letter and said, that sounds pretty mealy mouth. It sounds like there's lots of escape clauses there. And so I wrote a piece for Forbes on that. And uh, the interesting thing about being an academic writing for a journalistic outlet is I'm expected to uh, play by the journalistic rules, including you don't just take what someone has put in the words that get published in the, the letter in the journal you actually call them for comments. So I did. I called NIH and set up an appointment to get comments from Michael Lauer, who was the corresponding author, and said, so do you really mean it? I mean, it's, here's here's the weasel words that seem to be being read. Is that what you meant? And he was like, oh, no, 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 we really mean it. We're going to do everything we possibly can to address sexual harassment. And there will be various kinds of obstacles that we have to work through, but we're committed to working through them. Um, and at least so far, it's not clear that NIH has um, been able to live up to the check they wrote with their mouth back there. Do you think that the the pressure that's happening right now, though, from people like you and other women that feel that this is an important issue and from the other organizations that you mentioned that actually are making concrete changes, do you think that that's eventually just going to like the force of all of that is going to be too much and eventually everybody, NIH included, is going to take this issue seriously and do something about it? One hopes so. Um, you know, and here I'm, I guess I'm gonna, uh, name check another philosopher of science, Thomas Kuhn, who is famous for his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. He's the guy who talked about paradigm change in science. Uh, and he said sometimes people shift to the new paradigm, you know, on the basis of the arguments that have been presented to them and the data they've been shown and the problem-solving potential they see from the new paradigm. And sometimes you get the paradigm shift because the old guard dies out. Right. <laughs> so I think one of those two is going to happen. Right. Uh, National Academies of Science, uh, which was was getting sort of foot draggy about could we even contemplate revoking the honor of being named uh, a fellow of the National Academies of Science just because you've been found to sexually harass someone. I mean, that's nothing to do with your science, right? Um, and of course, the women in science sort of just bang their heads on the desk and say, why? Why must we explain this again? Um, but part of the worry, I guess, about whether they could put any kind of mechanism in place to revoke that honor was that the median age of the fellows in the National Academy is like 70. Mm. And it's a heavily male population. So right. getting them to agree that asexual harassment 
is a is a big thing at all. B that it's not completely orthogonal to how you are as a scientist and whether you should be honored as a scientist because you know scientists are not just building knowledge; they're also training new scientists. Yeah, um, that was uh, that looked like kind of an insurmountable barrier, uh, but but somehow they budged. So I guess. Maybe the the lesson from that is, uh, you know, the the mouthy broads who <laughs> are in or adjacent to science who see the problem and have to keep yelling about the problem. I mean, it's and certainly more fun than moves. just waiting for them to die. <laughs> that was my exact thought. <laughs> well, I mean, there's waiting and there's yeah. No, I I don't do the, <laughs> the kind of chemistry I did was never about poison. Okay. So you you can't pin it on me, Copper. I I, I have no access to military grade or civilian grade nerve agents. This is I'm, the you know, first time I've never thought we should run the podcast by a lawyer before we really. <laughs> <laughs> Janet, one more thing before I wrap up, uh, which I didn't nail down at the beginning of the show, and uh, it's been bothering me ever since. Um, what what was your great 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 grandmother's name? So my it's actually my great great grandmother. So my Sorry, great, great great grandmother's name was Janet Douglas Quinn. So awesome. Douglas was her maiden name, and okay. that was given to me, and. Um, yeah, and I got the story that went with it, That's which incredible. I think has been pretty cool. And I absolutely, I have one question for you before we wrap up as well. Can I call myself a philosopher? Because I have a friend who's a very degreed philosophy person, and she gets real picky about how people use that word. She says like you got to earn it. And, uh, but I just, I just feel like you know, I, I, I sat and talked with you for thirty five minutes. I think I can call myself a philosopher now. You, are you good with that? <laughs> I calling oneself a philosopher is something I think that even those of us who work in academic philosophy have a hard time with. And yet rappers like, have it's no not problem the same as calling all. yourself a I know, right? It's <laughs> <laughs> so I, I it's it's about boundaries, right? It's about who's maintaining the proper boundaries of who counts. And there's there's people who are always going to find ways to decide whether you really count as a philosopher <laughs> or for that matter, whether you really count as a scientist, right? I mean, there's I think there's some question, um, a legitimate question about whether I still count as a scientist, even though I've got this PhD in a science, because I haven't made a lick of scientific knowledge since the mid nineties. Right. Um, Despite the fact that my mother-in-law thinks I could drop everything and get a job as a chemist tomorrow (laughs) if I wanted to. Um, There's people who are going to say, ah, you're not really a scientist if you're not employed as a scientist. You're not really a scientist if you're not actively engaged in research. Uh, there's some people in philosophy who will say you're not really a philosopher unless you are coming up with brand new philosophical theories that set the world on fire. Um, you know, so I, that's your guys I don't know. I'm not amazing. Uh, we have all kinds of hazing. <laughs> For some reason, a lot of the hazing in philosophy seems to involve alcohol. 
I think that's normal. <laughs> right. So it's like everything else in the world. Great. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, philosophers have maybe a harder time than usual with the physical world, except when it comes to keeping the contents of their wine glass or, you know, highball glass in the glass as they're toppling off the back of a piece of furniture. Someone should do a study on that. <laughs> that sounds like an Ig Nobel Award winner in right. waiting. That could that could be your key to you know, uh, like if we if we can prove that it's right real. Yeah, yeah, right now I've just got anecdata, and I'm I'm actually not sure that an institutional review board would sign off on the study on account of the dangers to the participants. Are you either saying from it the might alcohol be... or the glassware? It might be unethical to to do that study. I, I think even even on philosophers, that might be an unethical study. Well, we are going to be uh, plying you with a good deal of alcohol uh, very soon. Well, I, I will sign the necessary consent forms. Great. <laughs> right. uh, those of you listening can come actually see Dr. Stemwettel completely compete live at Quizzatron on Thursday, October 4th at Piano Fight right here in San Francisco. She will be up against returning champion space nerd Ariel Waldman, stand-up comedians Robin Tran and Kate Gary, and of course, Keith L. Jensen. I'm going to win it this time. Yeah, not so sure. Uh, Tickets (laughs) are available at Eventbrite. The link is in the show notes, or you can go to Quizzatron.com. Janet, real quick before we finish, where can people find you? The most reliable place to find me, if you're not finding me in the classroom, is on Twitter, where my handle is DocFreeRide. Awesome. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. This was a really great conversation. Thanks for having me.